The new NDP government will begin their tenure with a defamation lawsuit. To discuss that and more are Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Province's Mike Smith. Also on the show, Integrity BC's Dermot Travis and Environment Minister George Heyman. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Centre. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and thank you for tuning in. Beautiful morning for a change here in Kamloops. Uh, Wow, the wildfire smoke finally moving out. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry and making a debut on the show this morning, Mike Smith. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning, Shane. Uh, guys, uh, and maybe I'll start with you on this, Smitty, since your story blew this whole thing wide open. Gordon Wilson, I know John Horgan apologized, followed that up with uh, immediately saying he expresses hope we can all move on in this thing, but this story is doing uh, anything but a $5 million defamation lawsuit launched <laughs> yesterday. Mike, uh, how, bad, how bad a position is the government in here? Well, I, I think Wilson's got them over a barrel here because the stuff that John Horgan and Bruce Ralston said about him, that basically he didn't do anything for the money he was paid as the province's LNG advocate, was just proven to be demonstrably not true. I mean, he just had to go on the government's own website, and there were 180 pages of reports, and that only covered the first 15 months or so mm-hmm. of his time on the job. He was in there for three and a half years, and that's a story I did for the province newspaper and it kind of as you said kind of triggered this whole thing and everybody started falling over themselves to apologize to the guy so horgan apologized ralston apologized uh, yesterday was an ndp mp named rachel blaney who was uh, the mp in powell river where wilson lives and she had piled on wilson as well she apologized but that's um, not good enough for him. He's still following through on his threats to sue them. And he launched, as you said, a $5 million defamation suit against the three of them yesterday in Supreme Court. I guess go big or go home, Shane. Yeah, no. $5 million, man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, Keith, uh, you mentioned last week you don't think that the review happened here, and uh, I don't know if this thing will ever get to the discovery process or not, but uh, oh. the lawyer is alleging you know, malfeasance, malice, a premeditated campaign. How big a role will this review or no review play in that? Well, I think the discovery phase, the examination of discovery is the key part of this lawsuit. I mean, the $5 million is a nice big number, but the reality is in Canada, we don't, uh, uh, the courts simply don't provide $5 million libel judgments. I mean, I've seen a number of high-profile libel cases in B.C., and they basically are awarded $50,000, you know, mm-hmm. at most, so maybe 100000 if uh, if this actually goes to trial and a verdict. So uh, the $5 million, forget that number, it's going to be far lower than that. I suspect the legal bills will exceed any amount of money that uh, comes in an award for Gordon Wilson if, if he actually wins this case. But uh, the level of proof is fairly high in libel cases, and it's no slam dunk that Wilson's going to win this, even though I think uh, the odds fail him, but I think politically the, the juicy stuff potentially will be in that examination of discovery. I mean, they may go back years. Remember, Gordon Wilson was, uh, we've talked about this before, he was in the NDP cabinet back in the 90s when John mm-hmm. Horgan was on the staff, when Bruce Ralston was the president of the party. So uh, the, the interline, interconnecting uh, lines here between these three individuals uh, go back a number of years, and the examination of discovery may well go back beyond this supposed review that probably never took place. Now, Mike, is there any chance we even get that far? I mean, if I'm a betting man, I'm thinking uh, they're going to settle before this thing gets to court. Yeah, I suspect quite often what happens in situations like this is that everybody lawyers up and then everybody shuts up and then there is an out-of-court settlement and we never hear any more about it. And the government is already saying that 
Uh, there are no further comments on the case because it's before the courts, and I suspect there will be some nitty-gritty talks between the lawyers here, and there may be an out-of-court settlement. Who knows? We may, may, might even not even be told the amount of money that changes hands, but hmm. this thing is going to burn taxpayers no matter what because I suspect that even the legal fees will be picked up for taxpayers. Although, um, that said, uh, I asked the government uh, yesterday um, who is paying for John Horgan's lawyer. And I got back an interesting statement from the Premier's office saying that uh, no, there is no cost to taxpayers for the Premier's lawyer at this stage. Hmm. And I'm, I was left wondering, well, what does that mean? Does that mean Horgan's paying for his own lawyer or the NDP's paying for the lawyer? What? Uh, they wouldn't give me any other further explanation about that. But it's an interesting turn of phrase at this stage. Maybe if it does go deeper into a legal process and B.C. taxpayers end up paying for the lawyers. I, any way you slice it, I think the taxpayers are going to take a, take some uh, take a bit some some damage on this. Yeah, and fed the federal level, too, because Rachel Blaney yep. will probably lawyer up as well. Right. Uh, Keith, uh, John Horgan chose uh, Jay Straith as his lawyer. I couldn't help but know that he has a bit of a history with uh, uh, with uh, Judy Tayabji and Gordon Wilson and the recently concluded Blair Wilson lawsuit, which involved uh, which involved everybody that was involved to essentially here now. An interesting choice in your mind or no? Well, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, she was he actually was able to, uh, won that case. Um, she was able to get out of it, so it's uh, it's interesting. But it's it, it's uh, there's a relatively small number of lawyers, from my understanding, that get involved in these types of situations, these types of cases. So, uh, sort of a small pool to draw from. Uh, but uh, to Mike's point, I do agree. At some point, uh, the premier and Bruce Ralston's legal costs, I assume, will be indemnified by taxpayers. That's 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 sort of the government policy. We've seen that uh, in in other instances in the past. So, it's uh, but I suspect the final bill to taxpayers probably in the small hundreds of thousands of dollars when you tally, tally up all the legal fees and the potential uh, judgment that may arise from this case. Well, Mike, a quick uh, final question on this topic to you. And I know that you dug up the 180 pages of documents. The one of the thing I see every time that that's referenced is uh, you have some sort of NDP foot soldier out there saying, oh, well, that was only in 2015. Uh, you know, what about all the years that followed that? I mean, is there more paperwork out there? Well, I, sus- I suspect there is. I mean, you got Wilson's enemies saying, well, where's the rest of the paperwork? Well, remember that these documents came out as a result, quite ironically, of a Freedom of Information request filed two years ago by the NDP. Yeah. So the fact that they, they went then went out and slimed the guy when they were the ones who requested these documents and had them right under their nose is pretty reckless in, in, in my regard. Um, but, you know, that only covers, the like I said, it only covers the, requ- the FOI request only covered the first 15 months of the guy's time in office uh, in that job. So he says that there must be other documents to cover the remaining period of when he was working, that there were other reports filed, there were other documents created. But by the way, you did not have to be Sherlock Holmes to sleuth (laughs) this thing out. All you had to do was go on the government's own website on a site called Open Information BC. You type in Gordon Wilson's name in the search engine, and all these documents popped up. I found them in like 30 seconds. So for them to go out and, and have said like what they said about him, they didn't produce any documents, is pretty crazy. When yeah. it, this, this thing was right under their nose. Keith, is anyone's head going to roll over this? I mean, somebody uh, put this information in front of uh, Bruce Ralston, who then trotted out, and as you said last week, made a fool of himself. I, mean, I imagine there's at least one person who's culpable here. 
Well, I I would think at least one. Uh, somebody in the caucus uh, was responsible for that FOI request. Uh, I haven't noticed many staff changes in the NDP since the transition in government. Everybody still seems to be hanging around. So whoever made that FOI request presumably is still in the employee of government and failed to tell Ralston or whoever that this stuff was out there uh, because he repeated it. Remember, this wasn't just a... It, he made the accusation at first when he disclosed that Wilson was fired. Then a few days later, he went on Red FM mm-hmm. uh, and, and exacerbated the situation. So somebody forgot to tell him that, hey, wait a minute, we've already uh, FOI'd this boss, and uh, we've already got the documents. So there's that uh, that lapse of judgment by that particular staffer. Then there's the, the uh, person in front of Austin who told him, presumably point blank, there is there are no documents. Whether heads will roll, I kind of doubt that. I think uh, there's a lot of confusion in the transition in government, and mm-hmm. they're going to chalk this one up to just that. All right. Well, let's put uh, this issue to bed. We'll take a quick break here on Radio NL, and we'll tackle a lot more in the week that was in politics with Keith Baldry and Mike Smith here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Mike Smith. Guys, I talked to Claire Trevena last week on the show, uh, and she made it sound like very, very soon. Matter of fact, before the summer ends, we're going to see some movement on removing tolls on the Port Man and the Golden Ears bridges. Uh, I talked to uh, Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore says in the one case, Golden Ears, a TransLink bridge, it'll be $40 million a year to make TransLink whole on that lost revenue. And that's one bridge, never mind the debt. Uh, Keith, maybe we'll start with you on this. Uh, how much of a fiscal challenge is this thing going to be? Oh, it's a it's a big challenge. Uh, it's not just the the lost uh, revenue in tolls. Uh, although, keep in mind, the Portman Bridge loses like ninety million dollars a year anyway, so yep. it's it's not a revenue winner. Uh, but because of the financial structure of the corporation that runs the tolls, that there will now be transferred to the province's bottom line of about uh, close to four billion dollars added in debt. That may have an impact. Mike DeYoung warned about this in the election campaign, although. Uh, the Liberals said they'd do the same thing in the throne speech, so their argument falls a bit flat. But there was a warning that a $4 billion addition of debt suddenly out of the blue may trigger a review or a downgrade of the province's credit rating. So uh, this is a, a bold election promise. In fact, I think it's the reason the, the NDP was able to win all those seats in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver, because this was basically a, a promise of a $1,200 check to everybody who drives the Portman Bridge. That's how much they were paying for this thing. Uh, but the financial implications are significant. And so it, it adds big time to the province's debt line, uh, bottom, bottom line for, for debt. But uh, how they actually are able to pull this off uh, will require legislation, one assumes. And I think we're going to see that uh, in the fall with the expectation those tolls will likely be gone by November. Yeah. How are they going to pull the rabbit out of the hat on this, Mike? Well, I agree with Keith that that was a fantastic uh, promise that the NDP made politically during the election. And it's a big reason they won all those seats, especially in places like Surrey, where they knocked off a couple of key cabinet ministers there, Peter Fassbender and Amrick Burke. I mean, it was just an absolutely fantastic promise that worked really well for the NDP during the election. But now comes the hard part delivering on that promise. So you've got, um, this is going to be an expensive expensive promise. I mean, if you just look at the tolls, the tolls on the Port Man raise about $150 million a year, and the tolls on the Golden Ears Bridge is about uh, $50 million a year. So how do you replace that money when the tolls are scrapped? 
Now, during the election, the NDP said, oh, no problem. We'll just take the money out of Christy Clark's LNG Prosperity Fund. Mm. Remember, the previous government put $500 million into that fund, even though we didn't have any LNG plants. It was kind of seed money. But so there's just there's half a billion dollars just sitting there, and the NDP said, okay, fine, we'll break that piggy bank, and we'll use that to, to pay for these uh, scrapped uh, tolls. But that's fine for about two or three years of yeah. foregone toll revenue, but then what do you do after that? Where does the money come after that? Now, I think where this is ultimately heading, and um, Greg Moore, uh, the uh, head of the TransLink Mayor's Council there, who I'm, sh- that, I'm sure that was a an, an really interesting interview, Shane, because he's in an interesting spot because he is saying, look, what we need to do is regional uh, road pricing or m- mobility pricing, more tolls, or you've got congestion pricing, or you've got uh, you, you charge drivers by the distance that they drive. This is what is coming at drivers in, in the Metro Vancouver Lower Mainland area down the road. After the NDP delivers on this very popular promise to scrap these tolls, and I suspect it is coming in the fall, they're going to have to deal with this mobility pricing issue, and that will, will not be as popular. Yeah, and we'll, uh, so the, the podcast bonus this will have the Greg Moore uh, interview, which is pretty interesting yep. on that topic. Uh, Keith, they do have some other interesting assets in play here. One would think that they would wind down Trio. There's essentially no purpose for it, and they've got the property that it's on on one end of the bridge as well as some other assets. Well, that's some assets, but they're also going to basically uh, transfer and inherit a huge debt here uh, from Trio. So uh, the financing of Fort Man was very complex, and but it was off book, and now it's going to be on the government's books, and uh, it'll be interesting whether that triggers uh, any impact on the uh, on the credit rating. And to road pricing, uh, yeah, Greg Moore wants is in favor of this, but the mayors have to own this thing. You know, the lesson of the of the 2017 election is. Uh, provincial parties cannot be tied to tolls or polls because if your opponent says, you know what, we'll get rid of this stuff, uh, they're going to win a bunch of seats. So, and the Liberals show indicated that by uh, basically matching the NDP's position in their throne speech, saying, yep, we're going to get rid of tolls as well. So, vote pricing may be inevitable, but it's going to have to be the mayors who champion this this type of of tax, basically, on motorists, not the provincial government and not the, the opposition party. And whether the mayors will do that, remains to be seen because they've shown a history of being skittish on all sorts of mm. revenue uh, measures that, that are designed to pay for transit. Yeah, no, I agree. But that said, the tolling, and I've said this before, the tolling in its current form with just the two bridges is by far one of the stupidest things I have ever seen. Uh, they should have told all of them or told none of them, and it was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a popular move in the lower mainland. Uh, it was, it was uh, it, yeah, it, it was unpopular, but it, it took another a party, in this case the NDP, uh, a somewhat bold position to say, okay, we're going to scrap the toll. So they never had that position in 2013. Mm. Uh, this was a relatively late-in-the-day position that, I, in retrospect, looked like a, a pretty smart one. Yeah. Or- Horgan said that the, the plan to remove the tolls will be in the budget. So that that's coming in early September. All right. Uh, I want to jam in a couple more topics, or at least one, before we hit the bottom of the hour here. Uh, the NDP, of uh, thanks to a Brett Jang story in Global Mail, NDP scrapping plans for a November LNG conference would have been the fourth, uh, but it is no more, which uh, I essentially imagine is a softball to the Liberals on this whole closing the door to big business thing uh, that they're good at uh, talking about. Uh, Mike, what's your read on this one? Well, I was kind of surprised by that story because I actually checked out this issue uh, a while ago, and I reached out to the government and said, tell me why this LNG conference was cancelled. And the government told me that the cancellation was initiated, in their words, on June 13th, 
which is the day after Christy Clark and her cabinet had been sworn back into power. So while the Liberals were still in power, not the NDP, this was before the non-confidence vote in the legislature, before the NDP were sworn into office. So I'm left confused here about who exactly uh, cancelled this LNG conference. Was it this new NDP government, or was it the previous Liberal government? that canceled it on June 13th, according to the government. So it, it's confusing about who exactly canceled this, <laughs> who's, who canceled this thing. They're both trying to kind of spin it. But the fact is it was canceled, but whoever canceled it is a little unclear. Wow, that is interesting. Keith? Yeah. Well, I think the Liberals, are, of course, will throw this right at the feet of the NDP. As you sure. Mean, another, another example of business going south and leaving the province. But, uh, you know, Mike's account does throw some doubt on whether this is the NDP. I think it may be symptomatic of the fact that the LNG industry in itself is in some tough times, and uh, the the glut remains, and the the prospects of these projects going forward in BC are diminishing by the day. I mean, Petronas has pulled out since since then, uh, so the biggest project's already gone, and uh, I'm just not sure how much enthusiasm there is there internationally right now for LNG, least of all in a place like BC. Uh, quickly on the BC Liberal leadership front, obviously nobody's jumped into the pool yet except for uh, one guy here in Kamloops, a guy named Neil Thompson. Uh, but other than that, uh, nobody else. Uh, I was surprised talking to some Liberal insiders up here uh, who uh, in both cases brought up Michael Lee's name, uh, an MLA down on the coast. Now, I, I admit I don't know much about Michael Lee. Uh, he's a first-time MLA. Keith, you've talked about him a bit here and there as, as looking at possibly jumping in the leadership campaign. But to hear him talked about in the interior as a dark horse is pretty interesting. That is interesting. I mean, he's a first-time MLA from Vancouver, Langara, a uh, fairly safe liberal territory. He's a, a sort of well-known corporate lawyer in Vancouver uh, and, a, and a leader in the Chinese-Canadian uh, community, but he's not that well-known, I think, uh, politically. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've heard his name uh, kicked around <laughs> by a number of people, and I think he's probably going to have the backing of some significant people in the B.C. Liberal Party because... Uh, I think uh, I think some of the it's not a strong field. There's no obvious front runner, and there's no obvious star candidate. Mm. So it, it, I think it benefits someone who isn't known because now they can make their make themselves known uh, in their own ways rather than sort of the baggage you carry if you if you've been a cabinet minister for a number of years. Final word to you, Mike. Well, I, I think this, the two star candidates are the two that haven't declared, and that is former uh, finance minister Carol Taylor and former Surrey mayor Diane Watts who have both said, uh, Diane Watts specifically has said she's thinking about it, and Carol Taylor has not ruled it out. So everyone is watching on pins and needles to see uh, if, if one or either or both of them might, might go for it here, and if either of them do, they would throw everything for a loop, and they'd be uh, the front runners, I think. Interesting. Uh, okay, Mike, uh, Keith, appreciate it, both you guys, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for your comments and insight today. You bet. Thank right. you. There you go, Keith Baldry from Global BC and Mike Smith from the Vancouver province. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk campaign financing with Integrity BC's Dermot Travis. First, though, Bob Price in the News. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Uh, glad to be joined by Integrity BC's Dermot Travis here on Inside Politics. Dermot, welcome. Good morning. Um, the uh, Elections BC unveiled their latest snapshot that covered the election uh, campaign period and all the financing involved. I assume you poured over that with a fine-tooth comb after reading the tea leaves. What jumps out at you there? 
Uh, still, still going through it, quite frankly. But I think one of the things that I find quite interesting is there are a few people who seem to have turned the taps off on the B.C. Liberal Party when you look at their 2013 donations and compare them to their 2017 donations. Hmm. Number of property developers, strangely enough, uh, don't appear in 2017, are appear with a dramatic cut in the amount of money that they've given. So a good example, Ani Properties gave money in 2013, not a penny in 2017. Um, the Illich family that has a number of different property companies, including Townline, uh, one check last 2013 election was for $100,000. Their largest personal check in 2017 was for $500. Hmm. You get the sense a few people might have been just a tad upset uh, with the Liberal Party in terms of how they handled the uh, foreign buyers tax and other housing matters. Oh, that is interesting. Did any of that money flow to the NDP at all, or is it just stayed stagnant? Well, that's the other interesting thing, and I'm working on that now to look at the number of companies that actually gave to both parties and to see how they compare. Uh, in the case of Ani Properties, they did definitely uh, switch parties this time and uh, happily provided uh, the NDP with a check for $5,000. Uh, you see tech resources, which everybody knows or should know, is the uh, largest single corporate donor to the B.C. Liberal Party. Uh, well, they always managed to find a check for $50,000 come election time for the NDP, and they didn't disappoint this time out. Hmm. Now, as I understand it, uh, the most expensive election campaign ever, $22 million spent. Uh, how did it break down between the two parties? Anybody outspend anybody else? Well, I, you know, the NDP outspent in some areas, Liberals outspent in other areas, and I, I do it that way because neither party really addresses how they spend their money in the same way. Manner. So you yeah. have, for instance, a party expense limit, how much a party can spend, and it's $4.88 million for all the parties in B.C., regardless of whether they run one candidate or 87. And then you have the candidate limits on top of that, which is roughly $77,000 per riding. The problem becomes in terms of how you try to compare one apple with another orange. Specifically, I think most people are used to those ads they see in the newspapers come election time where uh, it's a big full-page spread for one of the parties, vote for our candidates, and they list five or six in the readership area. And how those get divvied up seems to be different between the two parties. So I'm reluctant to come out and say uh, the Liberals spent more or the NDP spent more overall. They both spent roughly the same. Uh, but quite frankly, uh, the NDP got better bang for its buck. It saw its vote go up over 2013. Uh, and while the B.C. Liberals saw their vote go up a bit over 2013, their share of the popular vote uh, actually fell to the lowest level they've seen since 1991. A couple things to parse out in there. Uh, one is this one-size-fits-all spending limits uh, for all 87 ridings, regardless of their varied geography and different voter numbers, etc. Is it time to reassess that? Oh, incredibly time to reassess it. We have some of the highest spending limits in the country. Uh, we're higher, almost double what the equivalent spending limit would be in B.C. for a federal election. Uh, the idea that you should have the same limit for a riding such as Stickkeen, which is under 13, uh, sorry, just under 14,000 voters, and a riding in Surrey that's over 40,000 voters is absurd. It's not done this way in any other province in Canada. You base 
uh, a spending limit on the number of registered voters in a constituency, and you classify constituencies based on particular specific needs. So at the federal level, there's three uh, grades of writing. One that's incredibly remote, such as none of it, uh, one that would be considered a rural riding, and one that would be considered an urban riding, and they set uh, the spending limits accordingly. Also, this idea that you can run 10 candidates and have the same party spending limit of $4.88 million as a party that's running 87 candidates is also unheard of. It would mm. like saying that the Bloc Quebecois should have the same party limit as the NDP and the Liberals, even though they are only going to run candidates in Quebec. Obviously, the Fed's recognized that that's inappropriate, and they've addressed it. We need to address it. Uh, continuing to look forward, obviously the focus uh, here is on um, whatever the government does to ban union and corporate donations. We obviously haven't seen details there yet. We won't until they put something on the table. Uh, but I'm curious, what do you want to see here how, as far as how it would be structured, uh, how it would be presented in order to make sure that uh, things are ironclad, that there's no workarounds, that there's no sneakiness at play, and that everything is fair going forward? Well, I think in terms of the disclosure of donations, we're going to have to expand the information that a party will be required to get uh, from a donor. If we ban corporate and union donations, what we want to make certain that we prevent is an employer asking all of his employees to donate and that he would reimburse them. This has happened uh, at the federal level uh, with SNC-Lavalin, who recently uh, accepted fault for having done that. It's happening in Quebec. The best way to approach that is to require donors to provide their, uh, the name of their employer so it can be cross-referenced at that point. And as Quebec has done, to strike an agreement with Revenue Canada to, double, to have a, a double check, if you will, on that. Uh, I think we also need, and this is a concern that I have right now with how the government is going about it, we need to have a cap on personal donations that is a realistic cap. And I think that B.C. has become so used to all of the money floating around the system that it's lost sight of how other parties in other provinces uh, go about raising money and spending money. In 2016, the B.C. Liberal Party spent $12.2 million on everything from rent to staff to advertising outside of the election year, 2016. The four political parties in Quebec that have seats in the National Assembly, you add up all of their expenses for 2016, and it's $12.1 million. Hmm. So the idea that we need to have a high cap so everybody can keep bringing in the same type of money they had before is nonsense. Let's bring it down. Let's make the original uh, cap that the government should set with its legislation this September low so it hurts. So they actually have to go out and do real fundraising, not just go to their deep-pocketed friends and ask again. Final question on this, and it's an area that, that is of particular interest to me. I mean, election campaigns are one thing, uh, but Dermot, what do we do about the, the so-called dark money that's either amassed by political parties outside uh, an election campaign during a year or spent by third parties? I think it's going to be a tough issue. There are some constitutional questions uh, that surround it. Right now, in terms of the actual campaign period, which is from the day the writ dropped on April 11th to the day we all voted on May 9th, there is a system in place. It does control spending. There doesn't seem to have been any obvious signs of abuse that people have flagged. It's that outside of the campaign period. Uh, Ontario has decided on an approach that might work. They've set a relatively high limit for 
third parties that wanted to do election advertising before the campaign. And the limit is $600,000, which might get around some of the constitutional questions. The most important aspect to it, though, is not just the limit, but the disclosure. By requiring third parties to disclose where they're getting their money from. And I think when we see reform in B.C., and frankly, this should be done across Canada, that any third party that spends money on election advertising, the donors that they use to underwrite that must meet the same test of a donor to a political party in that same jurisdiction, such as citizenship, personal, not a corporate, not union, etc., Excellent. Dermot, always appreciate it. I always feel like there's never quite enough time to dive into it when you're on, uh, but I always appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight. Thanks. My pleasure. And I'm sure we'll have you back when they do table the bill to ban union and corporate donations, because that's going to be a big issue. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, uh, some breaking political news out of the United States, uh, whether he was pushed or fired uh, one way or another, but Stephen Bannon is out of the White House. We'll have more on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Next up, Minister of Environment, George Heyman. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Pleasure to be joined on the line by BC's new Minister of Environment, George Heyman. George, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I am good. So what's it like drinking from the fire hose right now? Well, um, it's not as hard as it is for uh, the many people around British Columbia who are facing the very real threat of wildfires. So uh, that gives me a perspective on the work I'm doing, just trying to uh, make things a bit better for British Columbians. And I just want to say to uh, anyone who's in your listening area who's impacted or or, uh, providing support to people who have been impacted, um, we're doing everything we can. And thank you to those who are helping. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been unbelievable here in Kamloops, which of course, other than Prince George, has been one of the focal points for the evacuees. But uh, the outpouring of generosity and support from this community has just been uh, it's been I don't know I don't even have words. It's been unbelievable. So I uh, that's my experience every time I've been to Kamloops. Uh, it's a great place, and the people there are great people. All right, uh, let's jump into the the deep end here, George. Uh, your mandate letter mentions revitalizing the environmental assessment process, uh, reviewing the professional reliance model. I know that's underway. Uh, what's not working with the current assessment process? Well, I think what's not working with the current assessment process is we've had many court challenges from uh, First Nations around uh, proper consultation. So we need to make sure that in the uh, in the face of uh, particularly recent court decisions, that we have a process that is transparent, that's science-based, that people in communities believe they have uh, complete input into, and that uh, partners with First Nations to make uh, decisions that are in the best interests of uh, everybody in the community, uh, provide jobs, give proponents and industry a clear sense of, uh, of what the rules are so they can know which projects are likely to have a chance of success and what they have to do to make them successful. And at the same time give people who are concerned about air or or water um, uh, cleanliness and protection that the process will be uh, clear they'll know uh, they'll know what's going on they'll be able to have trust in it and they can be assured that the people who are reviewing the project are 
are doing so based on evidence and science. And if we can get there, I think we can uh, get the kind of social license, the term that people use to describe uh, projects being supported by a broad uh, swath of people in the community, not everybody, but broad uh, broad consensus, and also to uh, to allow economic development in BC that we can feel good about. Social license is an interesting one because my perception now is we have a decision on Project X, whatever it might be, uh, and people who uh, like the project will applaud the decision. People who are against the project will cry foul. How, how do you get around that and acquire a social license? Well, I think uh, you... That's exactly what I'm. Uh, I'm trying to uh, to design in an environmental assessment review. And let, let me be clear: this is going to take some time because we want to hear from everyone. We want to do it properly. Uh, there, uh, I know the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency is reviewing their act as well. So we want to ensure that um, that we're tracking. We're not setting up procedures that that don't mesh or in conflict with each other but if we if we do it right if we if we listen to what people expect in an environmental assessment process and uh, as well as what industry needs and we put it together uh, by what industry needs i mean a process that's that's clear that they know what they have to do to get um, to get approval and and what conditions they will have to meet then i think we uh, we won't satisfy everyone but we'll uh, I think satisfy the majority of British Columbians that we have a process in which they can have trust. You mentioned it's going to take some time. Roughly, what kind of time frame do you need to get a new process on the table? And I'm curious to know, once you do, will it tackle projects from that point on, or will there be any retroactivity to it? First of all, I'll answer your last question first. Uh, you can't apply a new process retroactively. People enter a process under under a set of rules. Uh, we have processes underway today that we want to make sure um, meet tests going forward, but we can't just uh, retroactively uh, redo things unless the courts actually order us to do so. One of the things that I've, I've found in this job is that the process of creating legislation takes some time. Uh, it has to be, uh, you have to have to let people know what you're thinking about doing. You have to let them comment on what you're doing. You have to consult appropriately with communities. Uh, if we don't do that, people are going to think we're doing it behind closed doors. And then you have to uh, get things uh, drafted by the legislative team and in, um, in the Attorney General's ministry. And then uh, finally, you have to get it on the legislative calendar. So, so I would say um, it's certainly uh, not going to be this fall. And uh, I, I don't expect to uh, to have it ready for um, a spring session, but I expect to have the process underway. I haven't yet had a chance to uh, draft something for consideration by the Environment and Land Use Committee and subsequently Cabinet, so uh, I don't want to tell people what my personal uh, ideas are um, until uh, other than what I've said on this interview other than, and, and let the uh, my colleagues uh, as well as the public weigh in. But people will be hearing more, I think, throughout the fall. All right. Uh, speaking of that assessment process, Kamloops City Council is uh, not terribly happy about it after a final report was produced by the assessment processes from the two levels of government on the KGH MAJAX mine. Uh, they're saying it's um, completely missing uh, City Council's concerns about the mine, air quality, etc. I don't know how up to speed you are on that issue, but uh, do you think that there's some meat to the bone to that complaint or no? Well, first of all, I want to say we, we respect Kamloops uh, City Council, we respect the SSN uh, First Nation, we respect 
sides of the issue in Kamloops. Uh, it is a uh, it is an in-depth, complicated initial report. I think it runs to some 500 pages, and I think a number of the concerns that were raised by Kamloops Council uh, may be buried uh, deeper in the report, and so. Uh, I think a number of the concerns uh, that the councillors may feel were left out were reflected, but the issue they raise is exactly why we have a public comment period. And in this case, it's usually 30 days, but because it's summer, it's August, uh, people are on vacation, we have wildfires, we've extended that to October uh, 10th, uh, a total of 63 days. And the purpose of the public comment period is for everyone who believes that their views weren't reflected in the initial report or that something was missed uh, is to make comment. And all of that comment will be summarized in a final report, which will also be made public, and then provided to myself and the Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources. Uh, We're the two people who will ultimately uh, make the decision on this, and uh, if anybody feels again that it was missed, they have a, a chance to tell us that. But uh, we uh, we will review the final report carefully, including everything that comes in uh, on the public comment period. So, uh, for councillors in the city of Kamloops, if they think something was missed, this is exactly why we have a public comment period. And at the end of that process, we will either say yes, we'll say no, or if we believe that some information uh, that we need to make our decision is missing, or some people. People have told us that uh, you didn't get this in the report. We've raised it and we don't see it. We have the option to uh, ask for more information before we make a final decision. So I want to assure the Kamloops City Council that this will get full review. They will have every chance to ensure that their points of view are heard. And and that's, uh, I think, what we need to do so that people will look at a final decision and believe that everything was considered. They've uh, they've requested you yourself and your federal counterpart to uh, come to town, hear their concerns directly, and look at the site and get a sense of it uh, from basically being on the ground. Will you? Well, when I was in opposition, I was in Kamloops a couple of times, and I met with a, a number of people with concerns about the Ajax mine site. I, uh, I got very close to the site. I under I saw um, areas of uh, of the close to the city where people thought there would be significant impact. So I'm, I'm not entirely uh, out of the loop on this, but the problem with ending an invitation like that when we have a process now underway is uh, I'm ultimately the person who is, uh, along with uh, Minister Mungal, who has to make the decision. If, if we come to meet with some groups in the middle of the environmental assessment process and the public comment period, we're actually interfering with the process that's underway. If at the end of that process, Kamloops Council feels their uh, their views have not been uh, properly communicated or reflected in, in the material that we have uh, and on which we'll make our decision, then they have a chance to tell us that. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to get a question in on Trans Mountain before we're, uh, before we're done. Uh, you recently, of course, announced first steps to uh, put a stop to the pipeline, hiring legal counsel, uh, going into court, uh, taking part in the NEB decision challenge. Uh, but you also mentioned that there's other options uh, Options on the table. Can you tell us what's going on there, George? What other options, and when will you kind of put those, uh, reveal those publicly? Well, when we make a decision on uh, another tool that's appropriate that we uh, that we can use to defend British Columbia's interests, we'll uh, we'll certainly release it publicly. What I, what we said at the news conference uh, last week was that we uh, we very much. Um, 
We very much want to ensure that we meet our legal duty to consult uh, appropriately with First Nations at every stage along the way. Uh, we know a permit's been issued, but within that permit are environmental management plans that have to uh, have consultation. Kinder Morgan has to undertake those, and we have to be satisfied uh, not only on those management plans, but at, at every single one of the well over a thousand permits that are going to be issued, that we've met a consistent test. Uh, BC government is already facing a, a court case on not consulting adequately on the initial environmental assessment certificate. British Columbians don't want us to end up in court again, so we are going to make sure that um, the process, as it is supposed to be conducted, uh, high standards of First Nations consultation and high environmental standards. And if there's something more specific uh, to announce about that, and there will be other steps we'll take, uh, we'll share it with the public as soon as we make that decision. All right, George, we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing yours with us today. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And that's where the radio portion of the show ended on NL, but as promised as a podcast bonus, I also chatted with Port Coquitlam Mayor and Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore concerning a number of issues, including bridge tolls and mobility pricing. Here is that conversation. As I understand it, you've met with the Minister of Transportation, Claire Trevena. Obviously, there's a lot on your agenda uh, that is that she's in charge of file-wise. Uh, anything you can tell us coming out of that meeting? You know, we had a great conversation. We sent her a letter about getting together to talk about uh, transportation and infrastructure issues here in Metro Vancouver. And uh, she got the letter yesterday, and I had a meeting with her this morning. So, you know, starting off on the right foot of wanting to engage with local government. So, you know, that's the first step to, I think, a good relationship. Then secondly, we, you know, we talked about the George Massey Tunnel slash bridge and the replacement and what that's going to look like and Metro Vancouver's concern. Although she's not in charge of TransLink, uh, we talked about what's happening with the 10-year vision for implementing transit solutions here in Metro Vancouver and uh, and just generally talked about the relationship with the provincial government going forward. One of the big issues I'm very curious about, even from outside the Lower Mainland, is this tolls issue. The, as you know, the NDP ran in a promise to scrap it. I talked to Claire Trevena last week uh, on my show, and she said, uh, we're going to do this, quote-unquote, very soon. Anything on that front that either you heard from her or you'd like to see from her, Greg? Yeah, we are in the same understanding that it's going to happen very soon, uh, probably happen by the end of the month sort of uh, time frame is my understanding, uh, removing the tolls. Um, but, you know, we need to have a, a conversation. This is an opportunity to uh, talk about, continue to talk about mobility pricing. You know, we at TransLink, we started a mobility pricing commission. So we've brought in experts from around the lower mainland to really take a look at mobility pricing around the world and what might, is there a solution here in Metro Vancouver? And if there is, what would it look like? And so, you know, we need to ensure that uh, this provincial government and uh, future provincial governments understand that mobility pricing, as much as it uh, will bring in revenue, it's a policy tool to get a better usage out of your road system. Um, and so there has to be a, a deep understanding, a deep conversation about that. And hopefully, and I think they're going to be open for that type of conversation moving forward. But I imagine to get there, you're going to have to either find a workaround or convince the government to scrap that requirement to hold a referendum. Yeah? Well, I would hope that the NDP just change, withdraws that whole piece of legislation. Period. You know, it's not, uh, we, don't need, we don't need a workaround when they said that they don't, won't hold a referendum or make us use a referendum as a funding tool. So uh, hopefully they just remove it. 
Yeah. Um, the other big thing down there is the George Massey Tunnel. I know that you have, uh, pardon the pun, considering your hair situation, but ripping out your hair over how this doesn't fit with the mayor's sort of regional transportation plan. I don't know what the NDP government's going to do there, but uh, have you talked to Claire about it, or what would you like to see happen on that front? Yeah, so Metro Vancouver uh, reiterated our position that we took and sent it off to the provincial government, and we had that conversation today. And our position at Metro Vancouver is, you know, we we acknowledge that there is a traffic uh, issue along that corridor, and we we acknowledge that something needs to happen there. But we also uh, say that, you know what, we need to work together to figure out what the right solution is for that corridor. Uh, the previous government, they basically came out and said, we're going to build a 10-lane bridge. What do you think? That isn't really public consultation because they weren't really seeking our input on uh, what the best solution is for that corridor. So I think if we can sit down with this uh, provincial government and really talk about transit, transportation, people, and goods movement, uh, as well as what the effects are around Metro Vancouver when you make such a significant land use change, then I think we're moving forward in the right direction and we'll find the right solution. Does the right solution potentially include a bridge? No? Oh, maybe. Uh, you know, I think I would be hypocritical if uh, we said that the provincial government, um, if the previous provincial government came out with a, 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 a solution without looking at all the options. It would be hypocritical if I came out and said, this is a solution without looking at all of the options. And so I think we need to take a look at everything from twinning the tunnel to replacing the tunnel with a bridge. I, I think one thing is clear that mayors around the region don't believe that a 10-lane bridge is required, that the scope is completely out of whack, that if there is a bridge replacement, it would be something at a much reduced scale. And would then would address sort of the trickle-down traffic flow like at the Arthur Lang or something for like that, for example, or no? Well, I think that's where you have to look at it. You know, what is, First of all, if there's going to be no tolling on the bridge, uh, that is one thing. If there's going to be tolling on the bridge or the tunnels, um, that significantly changes how people use the road network. And so that has to be a part of the conversation. And as we've seen, you know, we don't have to look too far. For example, Highway 1, when it was increased and we have fairly good traffic flow along Highway 1, now, for example, in Port Coquillum, the Mary Hill Bypass is now backed up for about four kilometers every evening as people can get through Highway 1 really efficiently, but they can't get down Mary Hill Bypass, Highway 7B. So, you know, there are all these ramifications that happen on other roads when you uh, make these decisions. And then one of Metro Vancouver's concerns is what is the impact on land use planning? If you start to build, if you build a 10-lane bridge that makes it really efficient to get into uh, the, uh, you know, some of the best farmland that we have in British Columbia and Delta, Will there be increased pressure uh, to remove more farmland out of the system? And that would be bad for all of us in Metro Vancouver and our food security that we need to worry about. So there's lots of, you know, the ramifications around this decision are, are far and wide. And it's not just a simple uh, a piece of infrastructure is old, let's build a new one. Right. Right. Uh- to circle back sort of the mobility pricing and tolls, I mean, you mentioned if there is a bridge in Massey, the potential to be tolled there. I've always sort of taken the position, and I think it's born true from what we're seeing currently, if you're going to toll them, then toll them all at more or less the same rate or don't toll any of them. Is that kind of in your thinking too or no? Yeah, well, that's exactly what we're talking about with mobility pricing. 
So um, the Eco Fiscal Commission came out with uh, uh, looking at mobility pricing around the world and then solutions for the major cities around North America. Their solution for Metro Vancouver was to toll all, to dynamically toll all of the bridges. So what that means is you could change the tolling rates based on time of day and what type of vehicle movement you are trying to move through the overall system. So for example, you could say to the trucking industry, the bridges are all free from midnight to 5 a.m. because there's no one using them. We want to get the trucks there. But if a truck is going to use the system between you know, 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. where people are trying to get to work, we're going to charge quite a bit more for that truck to use the system. So we can start to use financial levers to help manage how we use this asset, which is our roads, because there isn't a city in the world that has built themselves out of congestion. Yeah. So just out of curiosity from, from sort of the Kamloops perspective, if I drive down to the lower mainland and some future mobility pricing scheme is in place, what would that look like for, for us who live outside the lower mainland and then go to drive around in it? Um, well, right now, if you cross the bridges, you get told. So it would more than likely be the same thing. So mobility pricing doesn't extend to like, you know, roadways uh, that, are, that are not bridges, but, uh, you know, road and highways within Metro Vancouver or no? Well, it's too early to, I was only giving examples of what you could do and uh, what the Eco-Fiscal Commission came out with because we have so many bridges and you pretty much have to cross a bridge to get anywhere. So it makes it easier to implement a mobility pricing. But if you look to Singapore, for example, look down to uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, they're using a GPS. So people pay based on distance they drive, time of day they drive, these sort of things. So there are other technologies that can be used. But to put it in perspective, this is going to be a conversation that's going to take, you know, probably three or four years to have. We're not thinking, uh, we're thinking around 2022, 2023, that you would actually bring forward a mobility pricing solution. So what do you do for funds in the meantime and in between time then? Well, the provincial government um, made it clear that they would make TransLink whole for any lost revenue on the Golden Ears Bridge is the only bridge right now that we toll is TransLink. So they'll have to worry about their own books on Golden Ears or on the Portman Bridge. But for TransLink, they said that they would make TransLink whole on that asset. Yeah, that's going to be a significant cost. So I know that's out of your hands more or less. But Yeah, I think the cost uh, is somewhere $40 million or so a year in that ballpark. Wow, that's that's an ugly number. But one of the good things about it is it makes it very transparent that when you build a new bridge, it's not actually free. There's a cost to pay down the debt and there's a cost to operate it, right? So uh, you look over to, uh, to around the province, you know, look to Kelowna and they built the new bridge there. The bridge, you know, isn't free. It's a vital link, obviously, but it's not free. There's costs that come with it. And whether the cost comes out of the general taxpayer and it comes out of general revenue of the provincial government or a TransLink agency, or it comes from tolling, it demonstrates that there is a cost when you build these new assets. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle and sort of the rhetoric of the day. I mean, we all pay tax dollars that build roads that um, I might never even see in my lifetime, let alone use. Yeah, precisely. That's Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore, and that's it for this week's Inside Politics. We'll be back same time next week right here on Radio NL. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.